hello again. It's me. Um, yeah, thank you, Rich uh, and Elizabeth. We're, we're going to be looking at a few verses in Luke chapter 20 uh, this morning. Now, we've actually skipped ahead a little bit because uh, last week we were in Luke 18, and we will come back to some of the uh, content of, the, of chapter 19 in, in future weeks. Um, but just to set a bit of context for what we're looking at today, uh, Jesus is teaching in the temple court. So as we come into Luke 20, Jesus is teaching in the temple court. So he's right there at the heart of religious life in Jerusalem. And the antagonism and the enmity against him from the Jewish religious leaders, it was already pretty high, but it's gone through the roof. They, are, they absolutely hate him. They want him gone. They want to kill him. And there are two events in particular from the previous chapter that have really infuriated them. One is his arrival in Jerusalem to the adulation of the crowds who are basically proclaiming him as the king. That is the triumphal entry, which we'll be looking at on Palm Sunday, just before Easter. But then following the triumphal entry, he then, again, very well-known account, he went into the temple courts and he drove out the moneylenders and the people selling things for commercial gain. He drove them out. He went in and he purged the temple courts. And this just caused a, a massive ruckus, a huge, huge stir. And the Jewish, for the Jewish religious leaders, this is the final straw. This guy has got to go. How dare he come in and do that? But the problem is they want to kill him but they don't know how to go about it because the size of the following that he has. The, you know, the, the people at this stage, a week later it had changed, but, but at this stage the people are hanging on Jesus' every word. So what they try to do, the, the religious leaders, they try to trap him through asking awkward questions about things like where does he get his authority from, about taxes, paying taxes, about uh, the resurrection and marriage, these kind of theological uh, questions. That's what most of chapter 20 is about, these, these theological discussions. And it is like there's this kind of Jewish theological task force that is desperately trying to discredit Jesus through asking what they think are, are theologically tricky questions to try and trap him into saying something that will, they can seize upon to discredit him. That's what they're trying to do. The problem is, the problem for them, is that Jesus is just way too good at this. He is nailing them every single time and making them look really silly. And actually, he's turning questions back onto them that they can't answer. So they're being made to look quite foolish. That's the context. But then in the middle of all of that discussion, it, he tells them a parable which just serves to infuriate them even more. And that parable is what we're going to be looking at today. And we're going to do it a little bit differently today. Okay, this worked well, I think, in the first meeting, so I hope it works well in this one as well. Um, we're going to read the passage through, well, a couple of you are going to read the passage through, actually, uh, a couple of times in two different versions, and I'm going to ask you some questions about it before I tell you what I think, okay? So um, I need a, a volunteer who's happy to come and read through the microphone, read from the screen, uh, the NIV version, so don't overwhelm me at once. Rachel, thank you. So if you come up here, and the words will come on the screen. So first of all, this will be in the NIV version. This is Luke chapter 20. So open your Bibles if you have a Bible. Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 19 is what we're going to be doing. So do follow along, and then um, Rachel's going to read for us. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, 
but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Yeah, well done. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Give her a clap. Beautifully read. Beautifully read. Right, I need another volunteer now because we're going to read this through again in a different version. We're going to read it in the message version just to help us get this passage into our head and then concentrate because I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. So maybe a male voice this time who's happy to come and read. Jonathan, thank you. So again, reading from the screen, this is going to be from the message version. Let's let this really seep into our consciousness. Jesus told another story to the people. A man planted a vineyard. He handed it over to farmhands and went off on a trip. He was gone a long time. In time, he sent a servant back to the farmhands to collect the profits, but they beat him up and sent him off empty-handed. He decided to try again and sent another servant. That one they beat black and blue and sent him off empty-handed. He tried a third time. They worked that servant over from head to foot and dumped him in the street. Then the owner of the vineyard said, I know what I'll do. I'll send my beloved son. They're bound to respect my son. But when the farmhands saw him coming, they quickly put their heads together. This is our chance. This is the heir. Let's kill him and have it all to ourselves. They killed him and threw him over the fence. What do you think the owner of the vineyard will do? Right, he'll come and get rid of everyone. Then he'll assign the care of the vineyard to others. Those who are listening said, oh no, he'd never do that. But Jesus didn't back down. Why then do you think this was written? The stone that the masons threw out, it's now the cornerstone. Anyone falling over that stone will break every bone in his body. If the stone falls on anyone, he'll be smashed to smithereens. The religion scholars and high priests wanted to lynch him on the spot, but they were intimidated by public opinion. They knew the story was about them. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Okay, so I'm going to ask you some questions here. Just not going to give you long, because we don't have very long. But um, here, here are the questions I want you to consider. First of all, well, in general, what stands out to you from the passage? 
But actually, then, the two questions I want to really focus in on is, what does this teach us about God, this passage? What does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about people, about us? What does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about people? And what I'd like you to do, just for a couple of minutes, is talk to each other about it, if, you, if you're happy to. If you're not happy to, that's fine. Just keep your head down. People won't bother you. That's absolutely fine. But if you're happy to, just turn to the person next to you, or a couple of people around you, turn around, and just, just chat about those questions. You might not have an answer, but somebody you're near might. So just think, what does this teach us about God? What does it teach us about people? I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes to do that online. You think about this as well. Just think about those questions. What does this teach us about God? What does it teach us about people? Okay, so just a couple of minutes, turn around, start having a conversation. Okay, just, uh, just another few seconds. Okay, great. Now, very, very quickly, again, time is a little bit of a factor here, but very quickly, anybody brave enough to shout out, and I'll repeat for, for, for online, to shout out, what, you know, what does it teach us about God? Just, he's always with us, brilliant. Thank you, Caroline, God is always with us, yeah? He doesn't give up on us. So that is a brilliant point. Actually, let me, let me just very quickly, is that what you were saying as well? Let me just make a little thing of that point because I know I'm going to leave that out of when I speak. Um, his patience, that he doesn't, after the first servant, after the first messenger, he doesn't say, right, I'm going to go and sort them out. He gives us so many chances. And I'm sure that's your experience as well, talking about your own life. He never gives us just one chance. He is utterly patient with us. He wants us to come back into that right relationship with him. Yeah, great. Any more? What does it teach us about people? What does it teach us about us? Just briefly. That, yeah, that our nature, the nature of the human heart is, is selfish. That's the natural inclination of our heart. Yeah, absolutely. Anybody? One more. That he would judge. He will judge. Oh, yeah, brilliant. Absolutely. Well, brilliant. Yeah, it is. Is that? Yeah. He will judge. There will be judgment. He won't delay judgment forever, but he gives us chance. Right. I'm just going to sit down because you've done it. You've you've done it all. 
No, that's fantastic. Thank you. And I'd love to give that a bit longer, but time is short. And um, so let me let me share with you a few of my thoughts, a few things as I've dug into this this week. What I what I have seen in this um, this parable that Jesus tells. It's a very very thinly veiled attack on the religious leaders. There's not much disguise in this. They know this is aimed at them, and it says as much at the end of the passage. They know because the prophets in the Old Testament would often use vineyard language to talk about Israel. So Israel was God's vineyard. And so they immediately know Jesus is talking about a vineyard. He means Israel. And as the leaders in Israel, as the religious leaders, well, they're, the, they're, they're there to govern. They're there to have responsibility for Israel. They're there to steward and lead. So they're the tenants. So God is, God is the owner. They're the tenants. And Israel is the vineyard. That's the immediate context, but actually I think we can apply it a lot wider than that. And so we're going to look at uh, a couple of key relationships in the story that we see in the story. First between the tenants and the owner. I'm not going to talk about the tenants and the servants, but I am going to talk about the tenants and the sons. So we're going to look at two of those three relationships that we see in this parable. So first of all, the tenants and the son. Uh, sorry, no, the tenants and the owner. Um, so in this scenario that Jesus paints in the parable, the tenant's job is to tend the vineyard for the owner, to look after the vineyard on behalf of the owner, because it's the owner who has put the investment in. It's his money. He owns the vineyard. It's his investment, and therefore also it's his risk. And so their responsibility is to tend the vineyard for the owner in the way that the owner wants them to do it. His, you know, according to his instructions, and also for his profit. This should be for the owner's profit. The tenants would get paid from the income, but then the profits would go to the owner, and rightly so, because again, it reflects his investment, it reflects uh, his ownership, and equally, of course, that he would have to absorb any deficit if that was the case. So in the immediate context of the parable, Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, you are the tenants, God is the owner, so your job is to govern by God's word. To, to govern in the way he tells you to govern, to lead Israel in the way he instructs you to lead Israel. And also, as it were, for his profit, or really better word would be for his glory, not for your own, not for your own glory and not for your own power. The big problem in the parable, as it is in Israel, is that the tenants begin to act like owners. So there is a tenant and there is an owner, but the tenants start to act like the owners and push the owner out of the way. They're not listening to the owner now. They, they're doing their own thing. They're managing things in their own way, and they're not giving the owner what he is due. And Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, that's what you're doing. You are tenants, but you're acting like the owner, and there are going to be consequences. What does it have to do with us? Well, actually, it has quite a lot to do with us because, and we've, we've heard this already just in, in the way you responded, that the nature of the human heart in general, not just in first century Palestine, the nature of the human heart is to think of ourselves as owners when we're not. <laughs> we're tenants. We are all tenants acting like owners. So let me just explain that a bit more. We all know that we live in a broken world, right? It's pretty obvious. We don't have to look very far to see the brokenness, uh, the problems, the issues that we are facing, wars, famines, suffering, violence, all that kind of thing. If we think of the world as a vineyard, if we extend that metaphor of the vineyard to the whole world, well, it's a vineyard that is going very, very wrong. It is not producing the fruit that it's supposed to produce. It's not being well tended. There is violence. There is suffering. 
the underlying problem, though, the fundamental problem, because all the things we see in the world that are wrong, they're symptoms. So the war we see in Ukraine at the moment, it's a symptom of something much deeper, something much more fundamental. Lots of, all the stuff that we see, all the terrible stuff we see in the world around us, it's symptoms of an underlying problem. The underlying problem is what we see in this parable. It's that while God is actually the owner of the world, the owner of the vineyard, we are the tenants, we are actually tenants who act like owners. And that really is the definition of sin. You know, sin is not an easily understood word in, in our society, in our day. People will tend to think of sin as maybe being, you know, doing something a bit naughty. Or, or maybe doing something truly evil. And that there are good people and there are bad people. And, well, I'm one of the good people because that makes me feel better about myself. And at least I can always look down on people who are worse than me. That's kind of how our hearts work. That's how we see the world. The Bible's very clear. That is not the narrative at all. That is not the narrative of this world at all. That according to the Bible, sin, is, it's all pervasive. It, it's more like a, a, a disease that has corrupted every human heart. That has kind of darkened, blackened every human heart and the whole of creation. It's, it's just corrupted everything. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory, glory of God. Not some not the bad ones, and then there are these other people who are good. No, all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's pride. Sin amounts to pride. It's, it's, it's I'm going to do it my way, not God's way. And don't you try to tell me how I should live my life. And it separates us from him. Sin separates us from God. We're made for a relationship with God. That's how we were created. That's how we were designed. And sin separates us from that relationship with God, and it also separates us from the kind of life and the kind of world that we were meant to live in, how things were meant to be. So sin's this huge barrier between the human race and God, and it doesn't only bring separation from God, it also brings enmity. It, it means, sin means, that the effect of sin is the natural state of the human heart is enmity, it's hostility towards God. And that's exactly what we see in this broken relationship in the parable between the tenants and the owner. What should have been a healthy, harmonious, life-giving relationship has been corrupted and turned on its head by the tenants starting to act like owners and living in overt hostility towards the true owner. Okay, so let's define it a bit more for us, for our lives. What, what does this mean for us? How, how do we do this? How are we tenants acting like owners? Well, think of your life. If you think of your life, you've been given all sorts of things. You, you have money and possessions. You might not feel you have much, but you, you have money, you have possessions. You might have a job. You have gifts. You have talents, uh, abilities. You have a family, um, a sphere of influence, a sphere of responsibility, uh, life. You have life itself. And the biblical perspective on all of that is that all of it is a gift. Everything you have, money, possessions, gifts, talents, jobs, everything you have is a gift. And the giver is God. He is the owner. And we are the stewards. We are the tenants with the responsibility to use whatever he has given us in the way that he wants us to use it, in the way the owner wants us to use it, and to give him the thanks, the praise, the worship that he is due. But that's not how the human heart sees it. The nature of the human heart is to think of ourselves as the owner of all of those things. I decide how I use my money. It's my money. I earned it. It's mine. So don't tell me how I can use my money. I decide how I use my money. I decide how I use whatever power I have. I'll treat people in the way I want to treat them. 
I'll use whatever power I have, however I choose. Don't tell me I can't do that. I will use, I decide how to use my sexuality. So don't you tell me it's wrong to sleep with that person. Don't you tell me I can't do this or that or, or, or what is right and wrong. No, I decide how I use my sexuality. I mean, we see this all through us, don't we? All through the world. I, I have rights. Don't contravene my rights. I'm an autonomous individual. I have rights. Don't you tell me how to live my life. That's what the human heart says. Whether that's directed at the church or whether it's directed at God or anybody else, don't you tell me because I am the great I am. I'm at the center of the story, not nobody else. That's what the human heart does. Our society is characterized at the moment by self-absorption. Utterly self-absorbed. And there are many rabbit holes I could go down on that. But what, some of the things that we look at in our society right now that leave us thinking, how have we come to this? How have we got to the point where people cannot even define what a woman is? It's self-absorption is what it comes back to. It's sin. It's tenants acting like owners. That there is a drive in the human heart for self-sufficiency and independence. Look, you know, look, at, look at how well I've done. Look at what I've achieved. Look at the wealth I have built up through my hard work. And not like the other people who are probably quite lazy. You know, and, and fine, you, know, you may have worked hard for what you have, but who gave you the ability to do that in the first place? It's all a gift, is the point. The human heart wants self-sufficiency and independence. You see it very early on in young children. You, if you've encountered young children at all, you'll know that this is true of them because they tend to be hell-bent on doing something that you know is going to be dangerous for them. You know, I am going to go and place my hand on that hot oven. And you're like, no, don't do that. It's not going to be good for you. No, I am going to do it because they want to do it their way. They know best. And that attitude doesn't lessen as they become teenagers. And it actually probably doesn't lessen very much as we become adults either. I know best. I will do it my way. In our culture, we celebrate independence. We celebrate self-sufficiency as, a, as, as a, a model to be held. Look at how well, look at what this person has made of their life. And there's lots of good in that. Of course there is. There are good things to celebrate in, in, in all of that. But ultimately, it's an illusion because everything we have is a gift. We're actually not made to be independent. We're made to be dependent on someone far greater. We just don't want to see it. We don't want to know about it. Because we want the glory. You know, even though deep down, I think actually every human being knows deep down that we are tenants and not owners. Because, you know, even if you're somebody of no faith, well, you no faith in God. You have faith in something. You worship something. But you, let's say you have no faith in God. Even if you're somebody of no faith... Every human being, I think, has an intuitive sense that there is something bigger than us, that we're part of a bigger story, that the, the, the world, we were made for a different kind of world. The world wasn't meant to be like this. There's something that's missing. There's a, there's a gap. I think everybody knows it. Everybody knows there's meaning in life, you know, that we're not, we're not random accidents that just happen to, you know, with no meaning at all. Everybody has a sense that there is meaning. They might not know what it is, but there is meaning. Everybody knows that there is right and wrong. And not just a subjective right and wrong, but a standard of right and wrong that, that, that everybody holds that comes from somewhere else. And the thing is, all of those things in the end lead you to God, or the idea of a God. But the inclination of our hearts, because of sin, is to hate God, and to hate the idea of God, and that he might have something to say about how we live our lives. 
We hate the idea of God and the idea that actually we might owe him everything because that is the opposite of self-sufficiency. He is the owner. We are the tenants. We want to be in control of our lives, but it's an, it's an illusion. Ultimately, it's an illusion. It doesn't take a genius to work this out. You are not in control of your life, the big things in your life. We all know that in an instant, your life can be changed by things out of your control, by illness, by uh, loss of uh, employment, by loss of ability, by loss of life in, in others who are close to you, and ultimately, of course, in ourselves. We're all going to die. It's, you know, Death has a 100% success rate. We're all going to die, and we don't know when. Don't kid yourself that you're in control. You're not in control. God is in control. God is the owner. We are the tenants. But the sin of our hearts leads us to try to usurp the owner and live our way and not his way. And that leads to destruction. What about the son? So I said I'm going to skip over the, the, the bit about the, the servants and the message. But what about the son? Because we get this son in the story after he sent all these servants, which are the prophets that God sent to Israel over the years to warn them. And then the son comes. The owner says, I will send my son whom I love. Surely, surely they will respect him. And clearly this is his only son because the tenants kill him, thinking now we can grab the inheritance. There's not another child, another son for it to pass to. And the parallels are obvious, aren't they? I said this was pretty thinly veiled. The parallels are obvious to the the coming execution of Jesus that would come very shortly in in the timeline of, of Luke's gospel. God has sent his prophets to Israel. Now he is sending his son. And the hatred that is there in the human heart towards God, that attitude of resentment towards God and his claim of ownership over our lives is about to find its ultimate expression at the cross as God himself is rejected and killed in a brutal, brutal way. But the irony is this. The irony is it's that very act of hostility and hatred that makes it possible for hostility and hatred of the human heart to be put to death. It's that very act that makes it possible for us to come back into that right relationship with God that we were created for. So this is what it says in Ephesians 2, 13 to 16. It says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Praise God. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews, made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier. He destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God, to bring them back into the right relationship with God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. It's astounding. By the cross, by that act of hostility, he put hostility to death. Praise God. And then Jesus drives his point home by talking about this stone. And this can be a little bit confusing to us. Like the, I think the parable up to now has been like, yeah, I get that. I get the parallel. I can see what he's doing. And then he talks about this stone. So verses 17 to 18 says, Jesus looked directly at them. So he's just... He's just told them what will happen. He said, well, God will kill, you know, the owner will kill those tenants and give the vineyard to someone else. And they are saying, God forbid, and may it never be so. 
And then he looks at them and says, well, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Well, what's he talking about here? What's this stone about? There's a bit of a play on words going on that we completely miss in English. So the Hebrew word for sun is ben, and the Hebrew word for stone is eben. So a ben and an eben. There is a clear link, and Jesus is deliberately making that link. He's telling a story about a sun, a ben, who is rejected, and a stone, an eben, that is getting rejected. And it's clear that the two are the same thing. And then it becomes clear, actually, he's talking about the Messiah, and and really, he's talking about himself, because he uses messianic language. So that quote about the rejected stone becoming the cornerstone, cornerstone, by the way, is that base of the the building, you know, the stone right at the base laid down that holds the two walls together and supports the the building. So, So the stone, the rejected stone becoming a cornerstone, that's from Psalm 18, which is full of messianic language. Uh, Did I say Psalm 18? Psalm 118, sorry. Then that idea that he says about, you know, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Well, that comes from Isaiah 8, which again is, 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 is all pointing to the Messiah, this future king who would come and rescue Israel. That's from Isaiah 8, which talks about a stone that will cause people to stumble and fall and be broken. And then, he, and then he says, and actually anyone on whom this stone falls will be crushed. Well, that comes from Daniel 2, about this big rock, this big stone in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, who, this dream that Daniel is interpreting for him. And this stone represents the kingdom of God, which grows and it grows and it ultimately will smash. It will crush all earthly kingdoms and there will only be the kingdom of God. Jesus is claiming to be that stone. All three of those things. He is that stone. He's the son in the story and he's this stone that is rejected and we know he will be, but will ultimately be vindicated and he will become the cornerstone. So let me ask you a question. What is the cornerstone of your life? Or who is the cornerstone of your life? And if you're a Christian, which most of you in here are, your immediate answer is, well, it's Jesus. But if you're really honest... Is he? Is he the cornerstone? Is he? Are both your feet planted firmly on him? What is the foundation of your life? What is the focus of your life? The the linchpin and the bedrock and the the base, the centerpiece, the the core of your life, the heart, the very heart and focus of your life. Because if it is anything other than Jesus, it will end up crushing you. Any other foundation will crumble. Any other foundation will shake and it will let you down in the end, and it will end up crushing you because Jesus is the cornerstone, you are not. We are not the cornerstone. We are not sufficient. We are not sufficient to hold the weight of our own lives. Only Jesus can do that. I said we live in a self-absorbed world, a self-absorbed society that puts me at the center of the story and not Christ. As soon as we do that, we're in trouble because we're believing a secular narrative that leads to destruction. We are not the center of the story. He is. He is the cornerstone. He is either the stone on which you build your life, the only stone, the only foundation that can possibly support the sheer weight and significance of your life, the only one who is fully trustworthy. He's either that cornerstone for you or he is the stone that will break you when the judgment of God comes, as mentioned at the back there, because that judgment is coming. Is Jesus your cornerstone or is something else? And how does Jesus become your cornerstone? If you're here today and you're thinking, well... 
Okay, I get that, but how, how? How does Jesus become your cornerstone? How do you move from being tenants acting like owners to being in that right relationship with God for which you were created? Well, you get there by looking with great humility, looking at the true and rightful owner who came as a tenant. If you want to be, stop being a tenant acting like an owner, look at the owner who came as a tenant, who came as one of us to pay the price, to take the penalty for your sin, for my sin. Just look at the lengths to which he was prepared to go to make us friends instead of enemies. You know, God made him, this is 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was treated like an enemy for us, dying a criminal's death, that he had done nothing to deserve so that we could be his friends, reconciled to him for eternity, a glorious, glorious eternity, and standing on an unshakable foundation right now. Look at the lengths to which he was prepared to go and tell me that you can't trust him. You can trust him with everything, everything you have and everything you are. He's the most trustworthy person in the universe, and he's far more trustworthy than you are with your own life who is more qualified to be in charge of your life he is you know if the tenants in the parable had just welcomed and received the son instead of killing him their relationship with the owner would have been restored even though they'd done all this rubbish all this stuff beating up the messengers and all mismanaging the vineyard if they had just received the son that relationship would have been restored That barrier, the wedge that had been driven in, uh, that, that not only brought separation but hostility, that would have been destroyed. It would have been done away with. But that's what Jesus has done. Jesus has done everything that is needed to smash that barrier of sin, the big problem that faces this world, the big problem that faces the human race, that barrier of sin. He has smashed it and he comes to you. Have you welcomed him? Have you welcomed him? And are you continuing to welcome him every day or has your gaze been taken by something else has your have you put a foot on another foundation just trying to keep one here and one here are you still welcoming him every day you know i said before sin is the fundamental problem of this world and if you've not welcomed the son if you're not in him if you're not born again you're not welcomed him if you've not received jesus if he's not your cornerstone then that problem is still very big for you (laughs) That barrier is still a huge problem. It's still there. And whatever the foundation is you're standing on, whatever foundation you're building a life on, it will let you down in the end. And you won't stand under the judgment of God. But if you have received Jesus, for those of us who have received him, for those of us who are born again, well, sin is still a big problem for us. It's still a huge battle. You know, it's not because of our righteousness. It's not because of our goodness that he saved us. Far from it. It's because of his But the fundamental difference, the fundamental difference for you is that that barrier has been removed by his grace, by his power, by his doing. And now he doesn't call you tenants. He calls you sons and daughters. He calls you heirs, co-heirs with Christ. You don't have to try and seize control of your life. Why would you when you have him? Let him be in control. Why would we ever want to control everything in our lives? You don't have to try and see someone else's inheritance because he's given you the inheritance. He's given it to you. There is this glorious inheritance that is kept in heaven for you for eternity because you are sons and daughters of the king. 
You are co-heirs with Christ. And so let us live like that. Let us live as sons and daughters. Let us live as heirs of this glorious king. Let us remember who we are and keep remembering and keep putting our trust fully in Jesus because he is the cornerstone and you are not.